We turn in God's inspired word this afternoon to Ephesians chapter 1. My intention to focus on this chapter in connection with the Lord's Supper. So also for preparatory today. And we'll read now the entire chapter of Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The text to which I call your attention Today is the verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 1. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, immediately acknowledging the praiseworthiness of our God, points to him as the source of all blessings that we enjoy as Christians. He is the source of all blessedness, having taken us unto himself in Christ Jesus, in whom alone is found all spiritual blessings. The eternal fountain of this blessedness that we enjoy in Christ Jesus is God's sovereign and eternal decree of election. God has blessed us in Christ, and here's the connection to verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we, who are so conscious of our sin and imperfection, stand before the treasures of God and ask how we could possibly be connected with such immense bounties of grace as the Apostle described immediately points us to God himself. This is really an astounding approach when you think of it. Why is it, what is it, that accounts for a person receiving such rich spiritual blessings as are referred to in verse 3? What is it that leads anyone to becoming a Christian and enjoying the riches of the blessings that are in Christ Jesus and which we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Certainly many in the broader church world today might answer by saying, well, a person becomes a Christian by believing on the Lord Jesus. Others would say we enjoy God's blessings by accepting Christ as our Savior. That's not the answer given here, nor is that response consistent with the language of the Bible. Others, perhaps, would begin with Christ and would point out that All this becomes possible because of what Jesus has done and what he is doing, and we would not argue with that. But there's a truth that lies deeper, and that's what we must see today. The apostle doesn't begin with anything in time. He goes back into eternity to the very counsel of God the determinant counsel of God himself. And we do well to note by way of introduction that this approach is entirely consistent with all of Scripture. You know, who know your Bibles know that the Bible always begins with God. First verse of the Bible. In the beginning God. And that's where we must begin too. The Bible, after all, is God's own revelation of himself, of what he has done and what he has promised and what he is doing. All scripture is God's revelation of himself in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul points us to God the absolutely sovereign God, the God who is God alone. And when you consider this amazing truth in its context, you will see and experience that the truth of sovereign predestination and particularly sovereign election is a most beautiful truth, one of the most comforting doctrines revealed in Holy Scripture to us who believe. The purpose of election must be clearly understood by us. And that purpose, very simply, 
is to reveal the glory of God. It's to reveal the glory of God in Jesus Christ and all that he did and does. But that glory is also revealed in the saints that are given to him, in you and in me. He has chosen us in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him, thus showing forth his praise, the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the central theme of this text. And so in that doctrine of election is found our very purpose for living. A magnificent purpose which is enjoyed in the very fellowship of him who so predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Don't overlook the fact that the apostle doesn't treat this abstractly. He doesn't speak about the predestination of the church or of the elect or even of believers. He makes it personal, including himself and all believers in the church at Ephesus. Blessed be God, according to which he has chosen us having predestinated us, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And his approach is purposeful. He wants the believers in Ephesus, as well as you and me, to be personally conscious of this great truth and to confess its personal application. And we have to do so in this coming week as we approach the Lord's table. So with that in mind, we consider this text under the theme, predestinated unto praise. We notice, first of all, eternally chosen. Secondly, wonderfully accepted. And finally, beautifully molded. This text teaches us, consistent with all scripture, that we are eternally chosen, sovereignly predestinated unto the place God has given us in Christ Jesus. Let's face the question, first of all, what is predestination? And to answer that question, we must understand that right here we stand before the incomprehensible love of God. It's a love that radiates from eternity. It's a love that reaches forth with purpose and embraces its objects with an unbreakable embrace. And when we make this personal, as the text does, then we say that the love of God has embraced us, has embraced me determining also that we should be among those who serve to glorify God forever. Now this is an absolutely astounding truth when you approach it from the viewpoint of the question, why am I a Christian? Why me? Why is there in me A love for God, a love for his truth, his word, a a desire to serve him, a longing to be fed by his word. Why is there in me a desire to be here today, to hear Christ speak to me? It's possible, you see, to approach the question, what is predestination, Merely from a theoretical point of view, as a matter of basic biblical doctrine. But look at it as Paul does. 
reflecting upon us and our place before God and why we are what we are, and it immediately becomes evident that we are talking about something glorious, something which reflects the amazing glory of the triune God. Look at it from this point of view for a moment. Why am I here on this Lord's Day when most all the world has no interest in worshiping him, let alone twice on the Lord's Day, and are instead filling this day with with their work and their pleasure? Why am I different? What has given me this interest in the things of God? What has separated me from those others? Has this desire and this pursuit after God risen for myself? Am I better than than, uh, those others? Is it just that some of us are good people and walk with the good God, while others lack the goodness that some of us have? We know that isn't it, don't we? We don't even have to get to the first part of Ephesians 2 and the doctrine of total depravity to know there is nothing in us to make us desirable to God. We are sinners, fallen in Adam. That's our condition as we make our appearance on the stage of history. And even though there are times we like to lift ourselves up in pride, and think that we are not so bad? We only fool ourselves if we believe less than what the Bible reveals about us. So I say, when the apostle points us to God and to eternity, and when he speaks about predestination and sovereign election as the reason for what we are, he points us to the love of God. Sovereign and eternal in the heavens. But the fact that God's love is on the foreground is evident not only when you consider this text from the viewpoint of your own place before him and your own relationship to him, but more particularly when you remember the significance of that which he says in each of these verses, namely... There is a connection between us and Christ, which God has established by the election of grace. There is a relationship between us and Christ that we celebrate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. God has chosen us in him, according to verse 4. He has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, says verse 5. And verse 6 also calls attention to that union with Christ when Paul writes that God has made us accepted in the beloved. In other words, by this sovereign act of predestinating love, God views us in union with with his son. Election is not merely, as is sometimes stated, a choice of persons to life everlasting. It's a choice of persons in Christ. Never are the objects of election seen apart from Christ. Don't forget Scripture also speaks of Christ as elect, the elect. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God calls his people to the Messiah, saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. And when Paul reveals to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
we can only conceive of it in the same in such a way that, that God chose Christ and the elect in him by one same sovereign and eternal act. Just as with the natural body, the head is not formed first in the womb and then the body. Both are called into being at the same moment, so with eternal election. Now bear in mind, Christ was not chosen to be the Son of God by virtue of election. He's eternally the Son of God. Election speaks of his calling and work as the head and mediator of the covenant. What is a head without a body? Or a mediator without a people whom he represents? So God chose Christ and his elect people in him by one and the same eternal act in which Christ has the preeminence. Viewing us, therefore, in union with his own dear son, he loved us with the same love with which he loved him as Jesus says in John 17, verse 23, the truth of God's love being intricately connected with our predestination adds weight to making a slight change in the way we read the last part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. Now remember, in the original language, in the Greek language of the New Testament, there was no punctuation. So it is possible, therefore, to leave the break where it is, holy and without blame before him in love. It's not so easy to see how that expression, in love, modifies what goes before it. But if we join in love to the next clause making those words the beginning of verse 5, the biblical truth of predestination as a blessed act of the love of God is confirmed. Love, his own sovereign and eternal, and we might add unmerited love, is the reason God has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And then also this text shows harmony with the truth that John expresses in 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. This sovereign act of God predestinating us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ To himself, which expression we have yet to consider, this wonderful election of grace happened, says verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. And here we come upon the most amazing aspect of that wonder of sovereign predestination. The fact that God chose us is entirely apart from anything we have ever said or done or thought, apart from anything he saw in us which might make us desirable, because there was nothing. But according to the pleasure of his will, You realize, don't you, we stand here on holy ground. We're brought face to face in this text with something of the very heart and mind of God himself. Earthly wings could never carry us to such heights. God alone could reveal it to us. 
It wasn't, you understand, that God saw those who would believe on him and then chose them. This election has nothing to do with what a man does or who he is. To put it in the language of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, you've been chosen, set apart by God's sovereign and determinate choice in order that you might believe. You are not chosen because you believe or because he saw you would believe, but in order that you might be saved through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And Paul continues, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not merely the, the doctrine of the Apostle Paul. That's the teaching of all scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in rebuking the unbelieving, the unbelieving Jews to whom he preached at the temple said in John 10 verse 26, but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. One must be a sheep of Christ given him of the Father before he can believe and before he can praise him who is the absolutely sovereign God. It's no wonder that this truth is so distasteful to the natural man. Without the eyes of faith, without the work of the Spirit to receive this spiritual truth, we have here a doctrine that's insulting to us. It's a doctrine that, even apart from the very real truth of total depravity, reveals that man is nothing and God is everything. God is the divine potter, the master craftsman. We are but clay. I, I preach to you who join this confession, blessed be God. But don't you see how this brings us before his, the face, his face and his majesty and his glory? The glorious triune God who lacked nothing, had need of no one, determined from eternity to set apart a people to himself, to reveal to them his majesty and his glory and grace by taking them into the glorious fellowship of his own covenant life. He chose us in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated. What an amazing truth. You notice that verse 4 speaks of God choosing us. Verse 5 speaks of him having predestinated us. Those are indeed two different words. And although the idea of each is similar and in fact inseparable, there is a distinction that must be maintained. Both refer to God's eternal decree. His decree which, remember does not merely precede the thing, but brings it about. But the word chosen is the word commonly translated election. It means that God has made separation. He's chosen out of the whole human race a people in Christ. The idea is not that the race was there and God handpicked a few, Remember, this is before the foundation of the world. 
The idea, therefore, of that is that act of separation is the fruit of God's determinate will. God's election of his people, as well as his determinate rejection or reprobation of all others, is absolutely sovereign. Sin, therefore, and reprobation for that matter, doesn't precede election. Rather, it serves election. The term predestinated looks at the same truth, but from a slightly different perspective. The term speaks of, itself speaks of determining something beforehand, but this refers to the eternal decree of God. While God's decree of election or choosing speaks of God's decree with direct reference to the persons he has chosen in Christ Jesus, predestination speaks of that decree as things or events or circumstances stand in relationship to the persons who are the objects of that decree. We have been predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto God himself and this to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why our theme predestinated unto praise. By this eternal decree of God, you and I have been wonderfully accepted In Jesus Christ, his son. God has predestinated us, in the words of verse 5, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. You and I who were lost, we who had no connection to the family of God, have been made his children. Remember, we've seen that this blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has chosen us in him, in Christ. Think for a moment of the love of God for his Son. It's an infinite love. What we are told here, also in harmony with that love expressed in predestination, is that God, having chosen us in Christ, poured out his love upon us, seeing us as one with his Son. And viewing us in Christ, he would do more for us than make us holy and righteous. He would adopt us as his children and love us with the same love with which he loves his son. Being chosen in Christ, the very elect, you and I, become the sons, the children of God. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is the one true and eternal son of one subsistence with the Father, he can say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. From eternity, God marked us as his, even unto the adoption by Jesus Christ. He did that unto himself. In choosing the church in Christ unto holiness and in predestinating her unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, he would bring her into union and communion with himself. He would take us into the covenant life of perfect fellowship and love. Drink deeply this truth, beloved. How refreshing you will find it. Adoption, you realize, says something about being exiles. 
prior to this adoption as God accomplishes it in time. You and I were outside the fellowship of his family. There's special significance in the use of this term, adoption. After all, the nature of of the Christian as a new man is not determined by adoption, but by regeneration. We become children of God when we are born again. It's by that wonder work of regeneration, the wonder work of the Holy Spirit, that we become partakers of the divine nature. But adoption conveys a different idea. The term adoption speaks rather of a legal standing, that which declares our relationship to God. And by adoption... We are introduced as the children of God, given the privileges that belong to membership in his family. The apostle, in drawing our attention to the glorious God, our Redeemer, would have us see what a a privileged place he has given us. There's no higher position in all the world. John put it this way in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. The world has nothing comparable. Nothing. The world can give all kinds of honor to men and show their praises, shower their praises upon men, but... The world has many things, but look how few are partakers of the world's glory and the world's things. And even those things are fleeting. There is death in everything. But when we have the fellowship of God, being members of his family, when we are made partakers of of his lasting riches of glory and grace makes no difference what place we occupy in society or what things we have or don't have. We have a privilege to which nothing can compare. And while the spirit of adoption works in your consciousness the cry, Abba, Father, you will find that your adoption is experienced now only in a small measure. But the time is soon coming when that adoption will be published throughout the universe to the praise of the glory of our God. But it's also by this sovereign work of God's grace that you and I are found accepted in the beloved. God has made us accepted in the beloved. The beloved is Christ. The text speaks of our acceptance in him. Let us note and never forget this truth. Our acceptance with God is only in Christ, his beloved son. That we confess when we partake of the Lord's Supper. There is no truth of more significance than that expressed in the Bible by two words, in him or in Christ. It's the very definition of a Christian. And you find that expression repeatedly in the Bible. The way it's used in this text is of great significance for us who will maintain the truth of God's sovereign and particular grace. For that which speaks of God making us accepted speaks literally of God gracing us or pursuing us with his grace. God's grace is particular. Acceptance is found by it. 
And that grace comes only in consequence of our union with Christ and of being so identified with him as to be viewed by the Father with the same favor as Christ is. The grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus radiates through his Holy Spirit and word into the very depths of our hearts and lives and fills us. That's how we begin our song of praise to him. That's the only way we live lives of praise to our Redeemer. The grace of God radiates in us that he himself is glorified by the works of his own hands. Do you believe that? What a glorious light this shines upon the union of the church with Christ and the fruit of that union. How close, how intimate must be that relationship between us and Christ if by virtue of it the Father loves us with the same love rejoices over us with the same joy and delight as he does toward his son. How amazing is that bond between us and Christ, established from eternity, when God reveals toward us the grace that radiates in his own son. Yes, this union with Christ is the only ground for our acceptance with God. Only in Christ is enjoyed the streams of love and mercy that flow from the ever-blessed and perfectly holy God. From here, the apostle will go on to point out how that love and mercy was revealed, namely in the redemption that was through Christ's blood, we're going to consider that, Lord willing, next Sunday morning before we partake of the Lord's Supper, Ephesians 1, verse 7, and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But it all begins with the amazing truth we are considering today. You and I have been predestinated unto praise, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, and so God, Christ would give himself for her that he might present it, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, verse 27. So we conclude our consideration of this text by calling attention to the fact that it is according to the sovereign decree of God that we are also beautifully molded into the handiworks of his grace. He has chosen us in Christ with the purpose that we should be holy and without blame before him. You know, these verses contain so much. It would be possible to preach a series of sermons from these verses. By giving just an overview of these verses, we are neglecting a full treatment of some critically important truths, not least of which is found in the last part of verse 4. But this truth is not unfamiliar to you who are in Christ Jesus it's written in your heart. And you certainly on many occasions have had opportunity to have these matters set before you from various portions of Scripture. But most often these truths are set before us by way of admonition or exhortation. God calls us to holy lives effectually working in us by that means. He has said to his people, whether in the Old Testament or the New, 
Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He has warned us in in Hebrews 12, verse 14, that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Indeed, the whole of our Christian life is to be lived as a life of spiritual separation unto God, a life of holiness is to permeate every aspect of our life. But we are told here that we have been chosen in Christ so that we should be holy and without blame before him. It's the purpose of God with respect to his people in Christ to remove completely the effects of the fall and of sin. It's his object in our salvation to rectify completely all the horrible consequences of the fall as seen also in us personally. To be holy and without blame are counterparts of each other. Both speak of sanctification. Holiness speaks of an inward state of purity, while blamelessness refers to that which is outward, being without blemish. By his grace, in and in Christ, and according to his sovereign decree, God works in us the spiritual capacity to delight in God and to delight in him in such a way that we hate all that which offends him. Sin, our own sin, is found as a source of grief to us. It had better be if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. And there arises within us a fervent desire to walk blameless before him and to his glory. Those spiritual virtues cannot be ours unless we are washed in Christ's blood and cleansed by his spirit. But those virtues are sure in us. God has chosen us to reflect those very virtues. Holiness, you see, is not some mechanical conformity to the law. And it certainly isn't merely being a decent person. Holiness is positive. Holiness is essentially a matter of loving God. Of living in the consciousness of the place that he's given us in his covenant life and fellowship. It's true, we experience that now only in a small beginning. But at the same time, this text makes clear that no man can claim election while living in unholiness and impenitence before God. No man can lay claim to the adoption of God when he lives in rejection of the rules of God's house. Election and holiness, predestination and godliness are inseparable because God has predestinated us unto his praise. That beautiful handiwork of his own sovereign determination is summed up in verse 6 where Paul tells us that this great God has done all things to the praise of the glory of his grace. What God does, he does for his own glory. That's true of all things. It doesn't matter if you and I can't see it. It doesn't matter if we were not there when he unfolds the works of his hand. All the wonders of God in creation... All the works of God's providence, all the labors of his grace and your life and mine are for his glory. So 
But when we stand before the wonder work of our salvation, we are pointed to God's sovereign purpose in it all. All these things are to the praise of the glory of his grace. Grace is beauty. That's the fundamental meaning of that term. Beauty. The grace of God is the beauty of him who reveals himself in all his virtue. In all his beauty, God shines forth in the works of his own hands. And so is revealed the glory of his grace. Also in our salvation. Nowhere does that grace radiate with greater glory than by God's work in your life and mine. It's the gospel of grace which we preach. The gospel by which God reveals himself to us in all his glory. The gospel which is signified and sealed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It is this way of saving sinners by grace. Sovereignly and irresistibly, according as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's this way of predestinating us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. That makes the gospel so sweet in our ears. We know no other way of salvation. And hearing this gospel, the grace of God radiates in us, moving us, lifting us up to praise our Redeemer. For so he molds us as instruments of his grace. And the work that he has begun shall be fully accomplished. And then we shall join those who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank thee for the privilege of meditating upon thy word and hearing that gospel proclaimed to us, we thank thee for revealing thyself to us in all thy glory and grace revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Father, as we contemplate returning here next Lord's Day, grant that we may come prepared also by thinking upon the word preached today and looking to our faithful Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.